this evening I would like to talk about joyful effort. Recently I was reading about a tradition of monks in Japan called the Marathon Monks, some of you may have read about them, whose meditation practice is running. And in the morning they get up and they put on their straw sandals and robes and they run. And they run in all weathers, in heat, in rain, in snow, in wind. They run. It's the beginning and the end of their practice. And in the end of their training, they run, those who survive that long at least, in the end of their training they run two marathons a day for a hundred consecutive days. Seeking, they say, to train their mind, to open their heart, and to learn to surrender a sense of self. When asked about their practice, they say in their running, they're cultivating or endeavoring to cultivate a sublime and unshakable clarity and freedom. When I lived in India, I came across a number of sadhus who had taken vows to stand, never sitting, never lying down, for up to 12 years at a time. I have a neighbor whose son has really quite severe Down syndrome. He's 11 years old. But every day of those 11 years, he's really required a very constant vigilance and attention and an ocean of patience and love and dedication. And my neighbors speak of their care of their son as a spiritual journey seeking much in that care of the same qualities, the same clarity, the same inner freedom as the marathon monks. We all recognize that it takes effort to do most things on our lives. It takes effort to get <coughs> here on retreat. It takes effort to get out of bed in the morning. It takes effort to raise a child. It takes effort to follow our dreams. We see that very specifically while we're here on retreat. How much perseverance it sometimes asks of us to take one step after another in walking meditation. When we have all these other voices inwardly that are telling us it's time for a tea break or shouting at us to flee or just to fall asleep. We see how much effort it really does take to sit here with ourselves in stillness, especially in the times that are not always that easy. And part of us knows that there's a lot more easy, accessible, gratifying paths we could follow in that moment. As we go through life, we see that every journey we ever make, ever begin, ever undertake, asks for effort. And in a way, a very real way, the effort that we make in the journeys in our life, that effort is the visible face of our intention. Our effort is the very visible moment-to-moment face of what we're dedicated to and what we're committed to. We see that it's not only the beginnings that are important. Effort is also part of being able to bring anything at all to fulfillment in this life, to deepening anything, to explore new landscapes, to learn. All of those areas of our life require us to be present, 
require a certain amount of dedication and certainly effort. Sometimes I think in a retreat the only instruction perhaps we really need to give is, is just to ask you just to keep showing up. That no matter what happens, what ups or downs, what states of mind you go through, what highs or lows, that if you just keep showing up for yourself for the moment, that you're doing really everything that you need to do. That whatever happens, you know, the waves of doubt, the waves of struggle, the waves of sleepiness, the waves of fantasy, whatever arises, to let it be and to keep showing up. In the Zen tradition, they call it learning to sit like a mountain that, can, that remains steady and firm and receptive amidst all the forms of weather that come. I think to some extent it's true. There's no doubt that if we just keep showing up, our meditation most likely will deepen. We will find a greater willingness to open, to learn. If we keep showing up, we will find that sensitivity deepens and we will be increasingly touched by life, everything within us and everything around us. However, I think we also know that it's quite possible to show up physically and yet psychically, emotionally, psychologically be somewhere quite else, far removed from our bodies and far removed from this moment. So there is also this question of how we show up how we show up on our cushion in our life. And this is where effort comes into play. It's always going to be part of our life. You know, I think sometimes people kind of imagine an idealized meditation where they're going to have some really magnificent breakthrough and then they're going to be able to retire from making any further effort. I don't, never met anybody where that is the truth of their journey. It seems that effort is always going to be part, if it's going to be part of our lives, also part of our practice and every journey that we make. And what is interesting for us to explore is the kind of effort we bring, the kind of effort you bring to being here, the kind of effort you bring to being present showing up for yourself. If we look at that, we see that the kind of effort we make often re reflects a great deal about who we believe ourselves to be, that our, the effort we make often reflects what it is that we have faith in, what we sense to be possible for us. In this teaching, this tradition, the Buddha speaks so much about wise effort. And yet even within that, there's such a spectrum of different ways of speaking about effort. You will hear some teachers say that if you want to deepen, if you want to realize serenity, if you want to be free, then you should be prepared to sweat beads. There will be other teachers, such as Dogen, who once said that there will come a time when you look back on the heroic efforts you've made in your practice as futile actions performed in a dream. Sometimes we hear the effort we must make to strive, to realize, to liberate ourselves. I had a teacher for a period of time who used to suddenly in the middle of sittings begin to shout at us and say, strive, strive, work, work for your own enlightenment. And everybody would jump and be shocked into this, you know, real heroic effort mode. And sometimes we, we shout at ourselves 
in the same way. Uh, almost as if we believe that all transformation, all realization of possibility somehow relies upon this very personal responsibility and personal effort and exertion that we make. We also hear suggested to us to cultivate the effort to be simply present, a benevolent, a gentle opening just to the simplicity of each moment. And there are these paradoxes. Uh, it seems almost like these extreme, extremely different views that exist all within one practice and tradition. We hear about goals to seek for, and we also hear about practicing in a way as if there are no goals to realize. And in our own practice, effort is something that it is quite important to understand and to investigate. Because effort is not just a means to awakening. Effort is not just a path to somewhere else. Effort is in itself a source of understanding and awakening. The kind of effort that we bring to our practice, to our life, that we engage in, is constantly reflecting who we believe ourselves to be. Reflecting some of the historical images we hold about ourselves, our sense of identity that lies at the core of our being. Sometimes our effort reflects what we sense is possible for us or what we might also believe to be impossible for us. We also see that when the effort that we make in practice is born of unconscious self-images, then it's that effort tends to manifest as unwise or unskilled skillful effort. And it's clear in practice that unwise and unskill effort, unskillful effort doesn't lead to greater freedom, greater joy, greater well-being. In fact, unskillful effort born of unconscious self-images tends to perpetuate the very patterns and identities we'd most like to be free from. If we look at the kind of effort we bring to our practice and we look at the kind of effort we bring to our lives, it's perhaps not surprising that they really resemble one another. There are some kind of habitual identities that tend to show up here at Gaia House or on retreat or any meditation center. There's the more habitual identity of the striver that some of you may feel some affinity with, who tends to come on retreat and tends to come to practice with a menu, an agenda of goals that must be attained. For the, stri the striver, the more habitual striver, tends to treat meditation as a kind of test of worthiness. Just like life is sometimes viewed as a test of worthiness. Meditation is sometimes approached like it's a mountain we have to climb, a place to succeed or prove ourselves. Sometimes we don't think we have much of an inclination towards striving. But if we see in our practice that we use a lot of words like good and bad, you know, good sittings, bad sittings, good meditations, bad meditations. If we tend to think in terms of success or failure, if we find ourselves looking for signposts of progress and equally on the lookout for signposts of failure, then we have a little bit of that inclination to strive. If we find ourselves sitting down at the end of the day with a checklist, you know, how many breaths in a row did I manage today? You know, how many insights? How many times did I move in a sitting? 
That's the striver. Tends to bring a good deal of self-consciousness both into practice and into life, always measuring. And part of the kind of striver identity, the striver image, is the judge. The voice of judgment tends to reveal itself quite strongly, the inner critic. There's another kind of habitual effort or more unconscious way of using effort that is often seen on retreats where the effort is much more ambivalent or lethargic. It's kind of half-hearted. You know, we show up, we're fairly conscientious about the schedule and the sittings and the walking, but everything feels like just good luck or bad luck. You know, it is a lucky accident if we run into a breath every now and again. Or, you know, a surprise by a moment of sensitivity. And, oh, how did that happen? Um, we're kind of waiting for meditation to deliver something to us, you know. We're waiting for meditation to deliver a glimpse of peace. And it's a kind of disengaged kind of effort. At times it's reflecting a more core inner belief that life is something that just happens to us. You know, perhaps it manifests really a low level of expectation or a sense of possibility inwardly. I mean, sometimes the person who gets really entangled with striving they're kind of a casualty of inflated expectations. But we can also be a casualty of having too minimal expectations and sense of possibility. I often have a sense that more people suffer from having too limited expectations of themselves in practice too limited a sense of possibility and vision, where we might be prone to resign ourselves to something far less in our life and in our practice than what is possible for us. There's another kind of effort, sometimes habitual, which is kind of an aversive effort. You know, we approach our meditation like it's a kind of onerous task. Medicine that tastes unpleasant, that everybody tells us it's good for us. You know, so we stoically show up, willing to swallow this medicine. Sometimes we sit and walk, fulfilling a sense of obligation and duty underlying that kind of um, ambivalent effort or that it is up to a level of aversion and we can see the reaction to aversion because we tend to be prone to spend a lot of time in fantasy and daydream. There's also a kind of effort which is more about willpower. It's the warrior in practice that treats life, treats meditation, that tends to treat everything that arises inwardly that's not kind of fits in with our ideas of how things should be as an obstacle. As if we're here to tame ourselves or to subdue ourselves, obstacles to conquer inwardly. It's a kind of effort of forcing that often has these really fixed views about how things should be. And we can have such fixed views about how things should be in our practice that there's so little room for generosity or compassion or spaciousness or really allowing anything to be just as it is. And sometimes we see this transference of will and this powerful tyrant of should, the transference of that from our life into our meditation. 
There's an article, a newspaper article I came across recently, which I thought really kind of described this kind of ideology of should and what a prison it is. And please, this is not kind of a, intended to be an insult towards any particular culture. It could happen anywhere. There was a German motorist has paid the high price for following their ideas of how things should be. He drove his BMW into the Havel River. After obediently following instructions, beamed to its satellite-guided navigation system on his dashboard. Oblivious to stop signs, never mind the river stretched out before him, the 57-year-old driver from Hamburg unhesitatingly continued on its journey past a stop sign, down a ferry ramp, and into the river. <laughs> Sedately, his BMW sank in about 13 feet of water. Neither he nor his passenger were hurt, but ship traffic on the river was stopped for two hours, while divers fished out his car. You can't always blindly rely on technology, said a coast guard, showing unusual Teutonic restraint. <laughs> The accident happened on Christmas Day when the couple went out for a drive and came to Kaputt in eastern Germany where a ferry operates across the river. However, that crucial piece of information was not stored in the satellite-steered navigation system of their BMW. Displayed on the dashboard, it uses signals from satellites to indicate the route. Unfortunately, the BMW's map showed the presence of a bridge when it should have indicated a ferry. As a result, the driver ignored the warning signs of the real world. Signs, people shouting, flashing red lights, that sort of thing. Placing his faith instead on its electronic counterpart, he was rewarded for his belief by being dumped in the river. We are here not to ignore the warning signs, we might say. You know, and we have them in our bodies, in our minds. We see the warning signs all the time in our practice of where we are pushing too hard, where our attitude is slightly off, where we are losing some of those very real assets of generosity, kindness, compassion. We need to heed the signals of when we need more perseverance, more steadiness, when we need to let go. Learning to listen to ourselves in practice is what mindfulness is about. It is not as if there is a shortage of signals. And the signals occurring in our bodies and minds are constantly speaking to us about what we need to cultivate, what we need to let go of, what we need to attend to more fully, what we need to actually move away from. And this is the kind of challenge and the effort that is needed in our practice. Most of us in life and in practice don't just carry one dimension of effort. The effort that we see in the moment might depend upon the mind state on the moment. You can see that. You know, when the mind is kind of depressed or contracted or down, we see how that gets reflected in the effort we make. We can see, you know, when there's more agitation, when there's more restlessness, we see that reflected in the effort we make. We also see that our mind states continue to change through the day. We don't just have one state of mind. We can find we begin the day, you know, with huge intention, effort, perseverance. We can find ending the day, you know, as if we're showing up for some onerous tasks. This is one of the signals that we learn to listen to. Effort, the kind of effort we make in practice, is an invitation to insight because 
the kind of effort we make is always communicating something. Times it's communicating, as I mentioned, the mind state of the moment. Uh, the kind of effort we make might be communicating doubt or aversion or craving. Sometimes the kind of effort we're making in our life, in our practice, is communicating a more historical belief system or self-image that's very much part of our lives. And in the practice, we're really invited to listen very well to what is being communicated. There are some current psychological theories that profess that our character and our personality and our way of seeing and thinking and feeling is pretty much formed and solidified by the time we enter into our early adolescence. And that for the rest of our lives, we kind of learn strategies and formulas to make that character more acceptable to the world and to others in a way that hopefully doesn't offend too many people and may even earn us a measure of success or love. So it's kind of suggested in these series that if, as a teenager, you, you're kind of fearful or ambitious or angry or passive or loving or generous, that's really kind of how you're going to be until you die, with only minor modifications possible. And I always found, would find this theory really pretty depressing. I mean, especially for any of you who perhaps like myself look back on your teenage consciousness is something less than delight. It's quite a horrible thought, thinking that that was the consciousness we were going to have forever. I would also mention that it's a theory pretty much totally at odds, certainly with this teaching, where profound transformation is very central to the teaching and tradition. The essence of this practice and teaching really is a very simple faith that very profound and unshakable peace and compassion and wisdom and freedom is really our heritage. That we don't practice simply to expand our portfolio strategies that allow us to cope better with life and yet carry some kind of unchanged core of belief about who we are inwardly. Instead, the essence of this teaching is certainly the, the faith that we practice in order to be free and that effort certainly plays a part in that transformation. It's really not the goals that are achieved that are so significant, though. What is most revealing and often the place of deepest effort is in the quality of effort we bring. Because here we often see reflected, as I mentioned, our sense of identity, our self-images, our belief. In the kind of effort we bring, we actually begin to see what causes suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. What brings joy and what is the source of joy. In the kind of effort we bring in our practice, we see actually what leads us to close down and how we open. Dogen one said, in your meditation, you yourself are the mirror reflecting the solution of your problems. The human mind has absolute freedom within its true nature. You can understand this freedom intuitively. Don't work towards freedom, but allow the work itself to be freedom. This, I think, is very important in our practice. To allow the practice itself to be freedom. 
to allow the practice itself to be peace, to be equanimity, to be balance, to be compassion. Not to think all the time that our practice is going to lead to that. But what kind of effort would we make in our practice where the work itself, the practice itself is freedom, compassion, generosity, peace. In this tradition, we are encouraged to cultivate not just wise and skillful effort, but also to cultivate joyful effort. It is a suggestion, Joseph Campbell hints at this, when he speaks about discovering the rapture of being fully alive. That, I think, is joyful effort. Joy is a curious thing in life. It's a curious thing in practice. It's not just an experience, joy. It has much to do with how awake and how alive we actually feel. It doesn't take a lot to make us feel joyful. In fact, we would question whether there's anything in the world that can actually make us feel joyful. And yet we certainly know when there is joy. And it's often not some big, huge event or not something we can say is caused by something. It's not something we've gained, is it? Joy certainly is much more, or it's very often, a very deep sense of being, of delight in being alive, in being touched by life. The simplest things can evoke joy. What we see in the world around us, what we sense within our own inner world, the joy of being present in laughter, but also the joy of really being awake in the difficult. There's a Chinese saying that says, if I keep a green bough in my heart, the singing bird will come. I think this is what we try to do in practice is to keep a green bough in our hearts so that the singing bird will come. And we see it has much to do with our sense of being awake in our life. One time when the Buddha was walking through India, a man came up to him and remarked upon his, his radiance and the joy that he emanated. This man said to the Buddha, you know, are you, are you an angel? Are you a saint? Are you a mystic? And the Buddha just answered simply and said, no, I'm awake. There's two dimensions of joyful effort. And both are interwoven. One dimension of joyful effort is the dimension of vision or aspiration. The sense of possibility that we hold of ourselves, our practice. The aspiration that we have faith in to discover the mind and the heart of the Buddha, of a Buddha within ourselves. The other dimension of joyful effort is confidence. To trust on a moment-to-moment -moment level our capacity to realize and to bring to fulfillment the aspirations we seek for. The confidence in which there is a cessation of doubt. To have a very deep confidence in ourselves, our path, our practice, our capacity to understand and deepen. 
joyful effort asks for these two dimensions of vision and confidence to be always in balance. And we see that when they fall out of balance, we tend to fall into unskillful or unwise effort. Vision or aspirations without confidence often leaves us just to wander in daydreams and fantasies and ideals and romantic images. And confidence without vision tends to leave us to flounder in a kind of arrogance often. Let's say a little bit about aspiration and vision. It is really part of this practice and teaching. If you went to Asia to practice and you would ask any of the abbots teachers in Asia what it's about, why you meditate, they would only have one answer, that we practice in order to be free, that we practice in order to know exactly the same liberation and enlightenment that Siddhartha discovered. That our practice certainly is concerned with very profound transformation, but it is concerned essentially, this practice, with ending sorrow and conflict, not with fixing it, not with subduing it, not with covering it over with a layer of, of uh, anesthetic. We practice to end sorrow and conflict. We practice to come to know the compassion of heart and generosity and understanding as possible. Now this can sound very romantic and on one level I think it's important to recognize that our personal vision and aspiration in practice is not something that is static. I know that when I began to practice you know, I heard all this stuff about enlightenment and liberation and all the other stuff. You know, it's a, a, an absolute uh, teenage mass disaster zone, I would say. I wasn't really that interested in enlightenment. I was actually interested in just, you know, a little clarity would be a really good thing. We see how our own sense of aspiration changes over time. You know, if you come into a retreat, and your heart and mind is kind of beset with chaos and struggle and agitation. Um, you know, it's pretty naive to think, okay, you know, don't sit unless you really intend on enlightenment. We can see that in that moment our aspiration is simply just to find a little calmness, maybe to find, even make some peace with a body that doesn't seem born to sit, or, or to make peace with, with the the turbulence of our thoughts. Sometimes if we come into a retreat, we feel really shattered by, by emotional storms or trauma and crises in our life. You know, we're not sitting here to contemplate the profound emptiness of all things. What we would really like to do is just find a little healing, a little refuge, a little rest. And that's fine. It's absolutely fine. In fact, it is really quite important that our sense of aspiration is related, quite related to our experience. But there's another piece that's also important, and that is to, to not see meditation just as a way of fixing the difficult. Meditation is not a way of fixing anything. It's not a device to make life go away. You know, it's certainly not a device that if we practice, we're somehow going to be guaranteed to in the future only have pleasant thoughts and feelings and experiences. Not so. But we can see that as our practice begins to lead us in the direction of our aspiration, then to really sustain the investigation, to sustain the exploration, we also see that our sense of aspiration begins to open and to expand. Calmness is not the destination of this practice. It's a beginning. Calmness is a beginning of a very vital exploration. 
Even healing is not the end of this practice. Healing frees us really to explore the whole of this life, sp- life story, to explore the causes and the end of all sorrow. Again, what's really important is to hold a greater sense of what is possible for us in this practice than what is impossible. And to have the aspiration to reach for what is possible. I think all of us, to some extent, have dreams and longings that bring us to meditation practice. And sometimes we haven't even articulated these to ourselves. So when, when you listen to the poems or to the songs or to the words of mystics that teach about freedom, I think there's a way in which their words resound within us. They stir a kind of longing for depth, to discover inner richness, to discover a very deep capacity to love and to care and to celebrate a longing for authenticity. I think it's very important to remember these longings, to breathe life into them, because they are really, that aspiration is what gives meaning to your practice. You know, unless you're really holding in your consciousness that sense of possibility, then, then some of the challenges and difficulties you go through really don't seem to have much meaning. It's important to let aspiration, vision, be your path so that every breath you breathe, every step you take, every moment you make effort, you're really walking peace, you're really breathing sensitivity, you're practicing compassion, you're living generosity. Exploring that sense of aspiration and vision, not in the future, but in this moment. Let the work be the freedom. Let the practice be the freedom. In the Tibetan tradition, There's a saying that you should practice as if you have a thousand lifetimes to do this and yet waste not one single precious moment. Confidence is the second dimension of joyful effort. I think we all see that nothing leeches more joy and freedom from our life than doubt and fear. There's a Sufi saying that says fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better accommodation. I mean, we surely do meet both doubt and fear in our practice. And we wonder where confidence comes from. It comes from meeting doubt and fear. It doesn't come from somewhere else. Confidence is often deepened in the fires of the difficult, which doesn't mean that you should go looking for the difficult, or there's some, you know, intrinsic virtue in suffering. But we all see that in when we meet those moments in our practice, when we are most prone to feel overwhelmed or resign ourselves to the impossible, you know, when you meet the mind states of chaos, of doubt, of fear, of of agitation, of anger, there's a path different pathways you can follow out there. You can start, we can certainly avoid, you know, we've got a, a whole kind of lifetime of training in avoidance. And that undermines confidence. Quite simply, it undermines confidence. And every time we are willing to turn towards what is difficult or challenging, not to overcome, but simply to be present with, we also deepen confidence. We learn about confidence in the midst of doubt and fear. Sitting here is a gesture of confidence. Because by sitting here, by walking, we're actually embodying the commitment that we make to our own well-being. To be with what seems impossible to be with, to learn that we can do that, is a gesture of confidence. 
to forsake the habit of abandonment, to forsake the habit of fleeing from ourselves. It really is a gesture of steadiness and freedom in the service of freedom. You know, every time you come back to the moment, instead of being lost in the habits of fantasies and daydreams and ideas and opinions, that is a manifestation of a commitment that you make to yourself, a commitment that you make to your own well-being. And sometimes we also discover that when we really are willing to turn to what it seems so impossible and solid, that it's not that way anymore. That the more we abandon things or avoid things or turn away from them, that increases their sense of solidity and power. There's a story about a little boy talking to his mother and he said, you know, what would you do? You know, he said, imagine if you were surrounded by a pack of starving tigers that all wanted to eat you. You know, what would you do? What would you feel like? And, and she said, I'd be terrified. You know, I'd be absolutely frightened to death. And she said to the little boy, what would you do? And he said, I'd stop pretending. This is good, you know. Sometimes we think things are so solid and yet their solidity is built upon our resistance to them and our avoidance of them. The biggest way of the confidence being undermined is by unconsciousness, by being unconscious, by being unmindful. We can see that when we're kind of unmindful or unconscious, we are prone to spin in the same frustrating circles of behavior and thought and response that we really despair about. (coughs) Being unmindful or being unconscious is a way of sentencing ourselves to what we would most like to let go of. We can see that when we are really mindful, when we are really conscious and present, that we don't have to walk the same old tired circles. And it so undermines our consciousness when we see ourselves falling into those old familiar pathways that we despair about over and over. You know, it's like you get up in the morning, you know, and you really have the intention to have a really mindful day, you know, and then after that an hour or so, You know, you think, well, I'm going to have a really mindful day after I have a coffee break or, you know, after my last fling with this fantasy or, you know, after I've kind of rearranged my cupboard or, you know, after I've gone to the post office, then I'm going to have a really mindful day. And every time we kind of do that, we can see ourselves under-leaching the confidence from our life. Because we are dishonoring our intentions, in a way. We are not honoring the intentions that we know are most conducive to our well-being. And it's our capacity to honor the intentions that we understand to be conducive to our well-being and to engage in the activities that support those intentions. They really deepen confidence. When we are mindful, we are less habit-prone and we are more enlightenment-prone. And if you think of this practice, it is a way of making ourselves more enlightenment-prone. Not that we gain liberation, but that we learn to put into place the conditions of sensitivity, intention, commitment, perseverance, wise effort, that we put into place the conditions that make our our consciousness, our hearts, more receptive to understanding and to opening and deepening. And that's all that we can do, is to keep putting into place those conditions. But it's also enough. Because that is what allows us to walk new pathways rather than to walk the pathways of habit.
When I first read the story about the marathon monks, <clears throat> I thought that the heroes of the story were all automatically those who got to the point where they were finished the training. And then when I reflected on it more, I thought the heroes could be many different people in that story. They may be the monks who kind of look at the training and recognize their own kind of ambitiousness or grasping and, you know, kind of turn away to go and clean the shoes or make the tea. The hero might be those who finish the training. But I think it's a way of stepping out of habit. Joyful after effort is always a way of stepping out of habit, not only outer habits, but our inner habits of how we think and see ourselves. You know, initially we think of effort as being very, in a very dualistic way. We think ourselves maybe as being here, confused, unclear, or unhappy, and that effort is going to take us to this different place where we're clear and happy and free. I think more and more we come to understand the, the kind of emptiness of that duality and that separation. And we, we, we come to recognize that really wise effort, joyful effort, is really only in the service of bringing us right here. It's not about getting us somewhere else. It's about bringing us right here to be more fully present in this life. And we see that every moment we do that, it is worthy. There's perhaps no more worthy thing we could do. We see that when we can do that, when we find that very deep willingness to come right to be here, that's the time when we can come into the meditation room and smile at our cushion. It doesn't matter whether it's wonderful or terrible what happens on the cushion. We know it is in the service of freedom. We know that it's in the service of our own well-being. You know, it's like when we can go to our walking meditation and smile at our path. It doesn't have to be a certain kind of experience. It's only the willingness to be present. And we surrender that dualism around effort. And then we see the way that our effort in itself can be liberating and can in itself be an expression of freedom. And then really it is joyful effort. We take just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.